You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 21st of August, 2018, and today it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce to you a, well, I won't say new podcaster, because he's been around for a while now, but someone who has uh, maybe not appeared on your radar yet, but let's correct that. I am talking about Patrick McFarlane, who is the host of Liberty Weekly at LibertyWeekly.net, and he uh, is an interesting podcast uh, that takes a very specific angle on a familiar subject, the subject of libertarianism or voluntarism or whatever you want to call it, broadly speaking, but has a very specific angle on it. So first, let's introduce him and uh, welcome him on the program. Patrick, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, James. I really appreciate this opportunity. And um, I got to say, you know, I really got into this game uh, because I discovered the Corbett Report and uh, Tom Woods as well. And so I really just wanted to make a difference. I wanted to help spread, you know, libertarianism and voluntarism. Uh, but also, you know, just, um, you know, everything when it comes to, you know, the conspiracy angle too. I kind of, I have my fingers in lots of different pots here. So, um, but primarily the Liberty Weekly podcast is a website that uh, expo- explores uh, libertarian legal theory. Uh, I just graduated law school. Uh, that's the angle that I take. Uh, I'm just about to start practice here. And actually, I'm waiting for my bar exam results right now uh, with my fingers crossed. So not nerve wracking at all, I'm sure. Oh, my gosh. It's horrible. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. So that that's what I was alluding to. It's a, you know, there's lots of libertarian podcasts out there. But what makes yours so interesting is that you have the legal background. You're about to start practicing law and you can bring that that specific focus to the podcast, which I love because I am very much a generalist. I couldn't specialize in anything. I'm just not constitutionally capable of doing it. My my range of interests are too broad and my attention too fleeting, I guess. But uh, but I really appreciate the fact that you're able to hone in on issues like that and speak with some actual knowledge and authority on it. You actually have done a lot of research and you can speak um, in a more in-depth manner on some of these issues that are kind of glossed over or... There's certain platitudes out there that people speak about um, without really knowing the the nitty-gritty details. So that's what I appreciate about your podcast. You're able to really hone in and and teach people about those nitty-gritty details. Um, But first, I guess we should address the elephant in the room. Uh, Libertarian, voluntarist, you know, government is uh, interference, but you're in the statist law system? What's the... there must be some tension there. Yeah, there is some tension, and actually, I I decided to go to law school uh, before I really entered the libertarian sphere in terms of uh, becoming a really radical libertarian. So there there is an elephant in the room in terms of you know, in order to pass the bar, you become an agent of the court, you have certain duties to the court, and uh, obviously, the court is uh, monopolized by the state itself. So um, what I'm really trying to do, I guess, is and it in some sad ways, it's a utilitarian case, but you know, the court, the, the state is aggressing. And in order to get the best result for your clients, you really have to enter that sphere and and use the state's defenses and enter that realm. And, uh, you know, if it comes to getting my clients and the people that I represent the best result possible, that's really what I have to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I understand that. And I, I liken it to someone like Stefan Kinsella, 
who literally wrote the book against IP, but is a yeah. patent lawyer. And it's precisely because this is a system that exists. I've got to help protect people from the system. I, I understand that. So um, I'm very interested to see as your career develops, you know, how this how this plays out. But anyway, that's all to come. And uh, next week when you get your bar exam results and you pass and we can jump across that hurdle. Um, yeah. But let's let's get into some examples of this, because again, uh, people might not understand kind of the context of this. I wanted to hone in on a couple of cases that you've talked about or a couple of topics that, uh, I mean, there are so many that are interesting. You just recently had a podcast up on the social contract from contract uh, theory, getting more into the legal theory of contract theory and that, that sort of thing, which again was fascinating. But uh, one that was uh, particularly interesting to me was the Masterpiece Cake ruling, which came out. The Supreme Court ruled on that uh, earlier this year, back in June, and you had a podcast up on that. And uh, this is a fascinating case, and I know, I'm sure that anyone who's in the libertarian sphere knows about this case, and uh, Gary Johnson and Bake the Cake and all of that stuff, but I'm sure there are people who don't know anything about this case, or have only heard it kind of in passing. So can you lay out, what is this case about? What are the actual uh, facts here? Yeah, and, and that episode I did is at libertyweekly.net uh, forward slash 80 about the Colorado Cake Commission or Civil Rights Commission. Uh, just basically in, you know, one or two sentences here, there was a, uh, a Christian, a fundamentalist Christian baker in Colorado who refused to bake a wedding cake for a gay couple that had come in and requested it. Not because, um, you know, not because he hates gay people, but just based on his own religious convictions. And he didn't want to participate in this message. But basically, even though the gay couple could have gone to hundreds of bakeries in a 10-mile radius that offered them free cakes after this case came out, uh, they decided to sue and essentially compel the speech of the baker, compel him to participate in this speech. And uh, I felt uniquely... well uniquely qualified to tackle this because I thought that a lot of people were getting it wrong, uh, getting the ruling wrong. Um, I was the vice president of the Federalist Society at my university, and we had one of the attorneys that worked on this case came in and talked to us about it. And the it was disappointing because this was a very important case. Um, just to, because um, on my screen here, I'm looking at all the amicus briefs that were filed, and there was so much interest in this case but this summer, the uh, Supreme Court came so, out with uh, the- Actually, before you proceed yeah. with that, just break it down for us. What This was a lawsuit that was being filed against this baker, and it was going to compel them to bake a cake? It, it was to compel them. And um, now, I'm not sure who exactly filed suit, uh, because the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, I, I think that there was a, an administrative hearing, and the Civil Rights Commission had ruled against- uh, masterpiece. So I didn't know who initially filed suit, um, but it was um, a very narrow ruling, if, if you want to get into the ruling. Yeah, let's uh, get to the Supreme Court. So they ruled in, in June? They did in June, uh, on June 4th. And everyone was saying, well, first off, there was confusion as as to what the term narrow meant. And it just meant that the scope of the ruling was very narrow, even though the ruling was voted seven to two. Um, but it was disappointing, uh, essentially, because the they had ruled it based on the free exercise clause. And basically, the Supreme Court ruled that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission was so um, hostile to the the cake, uh, the the baker's sincerely held religious beliefs. 
And the the free exercise clause states that, you know, the government has to be neutral. It cannot become entangled with religion and it cannot be hostile to religion. And this wasn't very satisfying because as Jordan Lawrence, the attorney that came in and spoke, he said this is clearly a compelled speech case and compelled speech gets under the American Constitution deserves strict scrutiny. The government has to have a uh, a very compelling interest, and that has to be narrowly tailored to that interest in order to regulate free speech. And and so the the Supreme Court really left the door open as to um, you know what. Let's see here. The, the Supreme Court really left the door open. They didn't rule on you know whether this was a compelled speech issue or not. They just said you know. Um, the, the Civil Rights Commission was too hostile to a sincerely held religious beliefs. So therefore, this was unconstitutional. Um, but they left the door open, I was going to say, to, well, what if the Civil Rights Commission was not openly hostile to his sincerely held religious beliefs? And what if they had compelled him to, you know, participate in the speech anyways? So um, I think it was really unsatisfying. And in my own personal opinion, I think the Supreme Court knows how politically charged the air was, and they really just didn't want to touch it. And I think it was a cop-out because they just punted it way down the field. Right, yeah. They didn't want to get to the heart of the core of the root of the issue. Can you compel someone to to make speech in this situation? They just wanted to say, oh, there was this technicality with regards to the civil rights. Right, so it was, as you say, punting it. But from the layman's perspective, I see it from the even broader perspective. I understand that this... This case revolves around the idea of compelling speech, which obviously is against, um, I want to say obviously against the First Amendment, but maybe not. Is that? Is that it is. Yeah, it is. okay. Yep. It's obviously against it to compel someone to make a certain type of speech is obviously. And so the, the issue here is they had to, you know, decorate the cake in a certain way or whatever. So they had to tailor their product in a specific way, you know, or the, that was the, the charge. But the, the kind of broader broader part of all of this to me would even go back to the Civil Rights Act and all of this, the idea that the government can come in and tell businesses how to run their business, what kind of clientele they can and cannot accept under what kind of circumstances. The implied ultimate authority or arbiter of this seems to be the government. And that seems to be the the kind of overarching theme to all of this, that the government can come in and compel businesses to do this or that, whether it's speech-related specifically or just, you know, do you serve this customer at all kind of thing, the underlying principle is still the same, that a business owner can be compelled to associate or dissociate with someone in whatever way the government deems necessary. Is that, I mean, from the broader perspective, doesn't that go to the kind of more the, the heart of the matter? I mean, you would think so, and you would think that the Supreme Court would recognize this. And um, this is really, I mean, you would think that compelling someone to serve someone else would be against the 13th Amendment, against, you know, slavery. And that's the libertarian argument. And, you know, I, I'm sitting in my um, <laughs> my constitutional law class right now in my mind, and my professor, who um, I respect the man, but he was very left, you know, as law professors tend to be, and he said... He mentioned that the libertarian argument was, you know, this is slavery, essentially. You're forcing someone to provide goods and services to someone else against their will. And, you know, although they're getting compensated, but as we all know, slaves were fed and clothed. And um, but he said, and there's there's a sort of logic to it, to that argument. He said that it is slavery. But 
but we, we, we can't think too hard about that. So we just kind of brushed that aside. And I mean, it was just, <laughs> so did you have yeah, to raise an objection to that <laughs> brushing aside? I mean, you know, and there was another time when I asked him if because this was when Trump was elected president and everyone was all sullen and somber. And he's like, if there's any questions you want to ask me about Donald Trump, you know, just go ahead and ask it because we need to talk about this. And I said, can Donald Trump fire Janet Yellen, the head of the Federal Reserve? And, uh, you know, the answer he gave me was the Federal Reserve is an independent organization. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Interesting. Well, um yeah, but that see that's that's the thing that um, I guess probably the majority of the American public have been conditioned into. It's like, oh, did you just say the Civil Rights Act is invalid? You are racist, and you want businesses to stop serving black customers, and it's uh, you're the neo Confederate, and of course you know all these trigger words and things that come up. But again, the idea is the underlying principle of this. Does the government have the right to come in and tell business owners what to do? Because that same right that tells them you have to serve this person or you, can, you, know, you can't serve this person is the same one that they could do to another administration come in and flip that and say, well, you must not serve this. Or they could pass some legislation that you know, says you cannot serve whatever. Conspiracy theorists <laughs> somewhere right. down the road, whatever it is, whatever group becomes targeted. Yeah, and I know I'm gonna. I, I with my episode, I got a lot of flack from the libertarian community who who is like, well, in their right, this is a property issue. You know, our the the property owner has his store; it's his property. You know, you can't come in and tell him what to do. So this isn't a freedom of speech issue at all. And I, yeah, I agree with that. But the Supreme Court has their own. You know, yeah, they're ruling on a specific aspect, a specific legal aspect of this. I get it. I get it. Right. Well, and I think it's all made up. I think it's very arbitrary. Um, just the entirety of constitutional law in general, you know, um, trying to find these protected classes and, you know, which rights do we have that are, you know, more important than others? And um, I, I don't agree with it. And I don't agree with the Supreme Court. The fact that, you know, we have and I've done a lot of work on this, too, if you search my archives. Um, but just the fact that we have um, a a bunch of oligarchs that sit, you know, nine oligarchs that sit and determine policy for the entire nation. Um, it, it politicizes every single issue, and that just causes division. And if if we were able to, you know, I mean, I prefer an anarcho-capitalist, a stateless society with voluntary interactions. But if we could, you know, make that smaller, if we could, you know, take these issues out of the purview of the Supreme Court, uh, that's what, you know, a step in the right direction. Right. All right. Well, it's an interesting case. So I will direct people back to your uh, podcast where you go into much more detail about the ruling itself and what it says. And I think it's a good example of the kind of work that you do um, at Liberty Weekly. But let's uh, let's move to a different topic, one that's um, very interesting and one that I've covered in in a certain aspect in the past, uh, specifically talking about the FBI setting up various Muslim patsies in terror, you know, terror busts that, uh, that make the news. And then you find out, oh, actually it was all an FBI plot that they basically cajoled someone into doing. Um, and so of course this is framed in the context of entrapment. This is entrapment. And so these cases should be thrown out. Uh, you took that argument on in uh, foreign policy focus episode 204, which I'll put the link in the show notes along with everything we're talking about today, obviously. Um, you had kind of a different take on that and what uh, entrapment is really about. Um, perhaps you can share that with the listeners. Yeah, so uh, a lot of things that I tackle in my show is this reoccurring theme of positive law versus, you know, common law or positive law being man-made law, the dictates of 
you know, Congress would be creating a law um, out of thin air, you know, and, and dictating it, whereas the, the natural law or the common law would be the customs of the people that are enshrined through a string of court decisions. And, um, you know, oddly enough, this kind of um, goes around with the whole progressive era in the eugenics movement and uh, just the idea of progressivism in general. Um, so a lot of what I do is I take the common law and apply it to the state itself. So let, let me really get to, I, I want to stay organized with this. So let me get into what actually in these court cases, the federal court cases, um, a lot of people will present the entrapment defense. And what the FBI is doing is they're taking these loners and people who never, ever would have been able to um, accomplish anything on their own. And if you'll um, indulge me with a brief quote here from a paper that I'll probably send you the link for called Estimating the Prevalence of Entrapment in Post-9-11 Terrorism Cases. Uh, this is a Northwestern University paper. Um, but here's a quote from Michael German, a, f um, a former FBI agent. He says, prior to September 11th, if an agent had suggested opening a terrorism case, against someone who was not a member of a terrorist group, who had not attempted to acquire weapons, and who didn't have the means to obtain them, he would have been gently encouraged to look for a more serious threat. An agent who suggested giving such a person a Stinger missile or a car full of military-grade plastic explosives would have been sent to counseling, yet such techniques are now becoming commonplace in the FBI. So in, in court, you know, these clients are scrambling for some kind of defense and um, the entrapment defense has evolved in, in response to these cases. So usually to present the proper entrapment defense, a defense attorney would have to argue that one, the defendant was induced to commit the crime and two, that the government has to, fails to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was predisposed to commit it. And usually the, the whole case will turn on that second element. The government f will fail has to fail to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was predisposed to commit it. And um, after 9-11, an entrapment case has never worked, an entrapment defense. Everyone has been convicted. And uh, this is a, a real problem because traditionally, in, in, the, um, in traditional Anglo-Saxon criminal law, um, well, in evidence in general, uh, character evidence is not admissible to show guilt. And so that just basically means that you can't say, well, he did it before, so he must have done it this time. There's a, there's a real problem with that because uh, it's irrelevant. That evidence is irrelevant. And it is very prejudicial because the jury will say, well, you know, oh, he slapped his wife, you know, two years ago. Well, he definitely beat her this time. Um, but so this, this is a, a real problem. And this idea kind of came the looking into character evidence, the necessity of looking into character evidence really came as a result of positivism in general. Um, and, and positivism has really shaped the way in the same way that the progressive era itself has, but positivism has really shaped the way that the criminal law has developed modernly. Um, it, it comes from the 1800s in, in Italy. Uh, there was a bunch of technocrats wanted to study how, criminals, criminology and how criminals acted. And instead of going from kind of a philosophical debate about, um, you know, mental states or mens re, um, which we'll get into in a second, but it really became about, um, 
you know, plugging people into equations and studying statistics and uh, turned away from that. So some of the things that are hallmarks of the positive law system that we would recognize today would be the death penalty, pretrial detention, civil commitments, um, bail scores or algorithms to try and determine these things. So um, the death penalty, the death penalty. Yes. And I, I have another site for that, but um, I'm a, I'm afraid I can't elaborate yeah. too much. <laughs> Fair enough. It's <laughs> surprising here. to me that that's positive law. It, it it was to me too, and um, but this was kind of a three step process here. Um, one was differentiation, uh, differentiation. You know, putting people into categories and boxes. You know, repeat offenders. Um, the second one was the pathology. And so putting people into hierarchies of character types and James, this is where the eugenics comes in, as I'm sure you're aware of, um, you know, trying to discourage certain groups that we don't approve of. Um, and then the third part is where we're really interested in, which is interventionism. So they would try and intervene to prevent these crimes. And that's where you get sting operations. And so the problem here is that, you know, when, when you get into pre-crime, you really get into that character evidence. And you get the state doing things that they really should not be doing. And uh, the, the, the common law courts have really kind of grappled with this because under the common law, to prove any criminal offense, you have to have both the mens re, which is the mental state that is required for the crime, and the actus reus, which is the act itself. And an entrapment case, you have both of those things, right? But it just doesn't feel right. It just does not feel right. And um, so in instances where there was a victim and the victim tried to entice people to commit crimes, the, the courts said, OK, we're going to let you off because you had consent. You know, you you have the mens re, you have the actus reus, and then you have the elements of the crime itself. Well, many of the elements would be like a lack of consent. Well, if the person was enticed into doing it, the courts would sometimes find that there was consent. Well, when there's a, no victim you see where the problem is. Yeah. But uh, so, I mean, the question then is the the consent, obviously. It comes down to that. And can you say that they consented if this is someone who's starving or whatever and is offered $100 to go to some hardware store and buy some supplies or whatever that eventually will be used to make a bomb or something like that? I mean, can you say that, they, that that's part of a criminal plot that this person is doing with active mens rea that they have the mental state that they know that they're participating in this and I mean, it just seems like such a leap well the in the the original argument was just that um you know in eve was eve when she this was a parable but when eve ate the apple you know she had she did the act and she had the prerequisite mental state and i think when when you get into that i i'm really kind of torn on this well then the question is is adam guilty Right, right, yeah, right, right. Did she entrap him? <laughs> and that's my answer, too, is that, you know, the, the FBI should not be doing these things. Um, you know, they're just as guilty. They should be charged with conspiracy, James. Um, right. So the idea is they should both be guilty of this crime, then. If they are... But, but the FBI is just doing it, you know, so that they can bust it. They're not doing it so that it can go ahead, although it does time after time, like 93 World Trade Center. But still, mm -hmm. Patrick, they're doing it for the best of intentions. 
Right, right, exactly. And um, we should just all trust them to be doing the right thing and that they're protecting us. So basically the implication of your argument here is that the entrapment defense is playing on with this positive law stuff that is that we don't want. We want the common law stuff. But uh, so I guess the, the idea is that that isn't really a valid form of defense against this type of thing. The real answer is you shouldn't be participating with the FBI in these plots anyway. Um, right. But so then the, the solution to this really is at the, the governmental level. I mean, the government should not be doing this, ultimately. Yeah, ultimately. And I know that's not a very satisfying answer because, you know, um, but it, it is a really tough question. And I wish I had years of experience to back this up. Um, you know, the, the brief research that I have done into this, but I think that the listeners will um, find the papers if I, if I can... I lost track of the second paper, but this first paper will be very interesting to them. And uh, that's kind of what I do with my show is, you know, I really want to give people the tools that so they can think for themselves. Yes. Well, that comes across very clearly. And you always go into a lot of detail and provide links and sources. So I very much appreciate what you're doing there. I will direct people also specifically to uh, one of the uh, the first episodes that I cited. I think the first episode of yours that I cited and the one that got me hooked as a regular listener was episode 14 on economics, eugenics, and the minimum wage. A very provocative, very informative uh, podcast that I will be returning to in the future, so I hope people will check that out. But in the meantime, I hope they check out your work generally. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Liberty Weekly, the Liberty Union, uh, what it is you do, and how people can support you. Yeah, um, well, so I, I do have a bunch of friends, and we all have Liberty-themed podcasts, so we have joined, banded together to try and share audience and encourage each other. Uh, that's If you want to check out the other member shows, that's at libertarianunion.com. Um, so you can check out all the other shows there. Um, specifically, I have a good friend, Kyle Anzalone, um, who runs the Foreign Policy Focus podcast that we alluded to earlier. And uh, we both work or are we contribute to the Libertarian Institute, uh, which is at libertarianinstitute.org. And that is uh, Sheldon Richman and Scott Horton's um, institute there. And so I'm very honored to be included in that and to be a part of that project as well. Um, so otherwise, um, the Liberty Weekly podcast is at libertyweekly.net. And um, if you'd like to support me, I'm at uh, patreon.com forward slash libertyweekly. And um, I use that fund to uh, buy more books. I also use it to um, do my internet hosting and the, the um, let's see, who's my, my um, the Libsyn. So the Libsyn podcast hosting. And so that's about $20 a month. And, you know, it does add up. Um, but every every little bit is appreciated and I can offer, you know, extra recordings from shows or outtakes and uh, access to my meme cache, actually. <laughs> so um, it's been a real pleasure doing this. And, you know, one of one of the greatest benefits is that I get to meet awesome people and to make good friendships. So that's that's what's really important to me. Absolutely. Well, that's awesome stuff. I hope people will check it out. Once again, libertyweekly.net and check it out and do support it if you do appreciate and get something out of this work. Um, and I just very much appreciate the fact that the Libertarian Union itself refutes that straw man claim that, oh, James, libertarians only care about themselves and they don't want community and they don't like unions and they don't want to work together. No, <laughs> no, they do. <laughs> they just don't want the government to tell them how to do that. <laughs> anyway. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, excellent stuff. Uh, I hope this wets the whistle of the, uh, the listeners out there and gets them ready for uh, hearing more of your, your work. And uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again in the future. So, Patrick, thank you very much for your time today. 
Thanks so much, James. Appreciate it.